Welcome into another edition of our Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast along with Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. We are uh, thrilled to have you with us. Chris, you doing okay? I'm doing okay, man. We're uh, busy as we can be putting out a basketball book, a newsletter, and now our podcast. So, uh, uh, all basketball all the time, but that's the way we like it. Uh, give us an update on the book. Where, where do things stand? Well, we're, uh, we're more than a third of the way through our production process. Uh, that entails, you know, writers from around the country sending us stories. I've got a couple of frontline editors that send me the copy and then I read it and I'm the last line of defense and send it back. <laughs> Uh, so we're going okay. We're, we're always, uh, I've been doing this for more than 20 years by myself and we're always behind. <laughs> Isn't that always, the way it is on, on any book uh, sort of uh, situation? Probably. Yeah. But we always get it together and, you know, uh, it's our 40th anniversary edition. So we've, we've been doing it that way for a long time and, uh, it always seems to work. Knock on wood. There you go. And uh, Chris, with our newsletter that's uh, off and running and just been some great content, you know, whether it's your, your story on Luca Garza, you know, Blake's talked to Richie McKay, uh, Chris on uh, Marshall Henderson in recent weeks. But but coming up this week, um, interesting uh, about guards who really uh, fill up those stat pages. Uh, g- give us a little uh, preview of what Chris Lee has coming on Jordan Goodwin, who has uh, done that for St. Louis University. 15 points, 10 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 steals per game, and, and really outside of Obi Toppin was maybe the uh, the A-10's most uh, impressive player last season. Yeah, I you know, when I used to I was I used to be a correspondent for Sports Illustrated and when I would edit the yearbook, they would pay me to write down little trends that I'd seen like, oh, there's a ton of kids from Australia this year or oh, you know, there's this or there's that. And so for, for the purpose of our newsletter and our podcast, I've been jotting down notes, story ideas. And this uh, Jordan Goodwin from St. Louis just flew off the page at me as I was editing the story. You know, this, this is a 6'3 kid who averaged 10 and a half rebounds a game. That's just incredible. So it sparked an idea. Let's do something on the best rebounding guards in the country. So we went to the NCAA. They provided some stats. We went to Ken Palm, uh, Ken Pomeroy, our statistical partner. He gave us some cool stats too. And then we're going to have a piece uh, on on Jordan Goodwin, and then you know we have found that uh, in addition to your many skills as a broadcaster, uh, you are also a wordsmith of, of some <laughs> uh, ability. And we thought, well, we had the best rebounding guard. Let's find the best rebounding point guard. So it just so happens uh, you are the radio play-by-play man. For that team that has the best rebounding point guard, I'll let you finish that story. Yeah, the uh, the rest of that story is it's Grayson Murphy, who averaged 7.4 rebounds per game for Belmont last season. And, you know, you, you know him as a guy he can he can get to the rack, he can hit a three. He's, he's just, I mean, he's a terrific point guard in, in terms of passing. And he he's, was the defensive player of the year in the OVC for his, his steals and, and just all the work he does there. But, you know, really running the show for Belmont's offense. But also... He's an he's an outstanding rebounder, and so um, I, I talked to Grayson the other day. Got some really good stuff from his coach Casey Alexander, and also talked to a former Bruin, now opponent of uh, Belmont's, and that is uh, Brian Collins, who's the uh, the head coach at Tennessee State. 
And, uh, you know, I decided before I talked to Brian, I was like, I'm going to go look up his career stats. And, uh, it, because I remembered him being a good rebounder in his own right. I, I called the games back when he played back in the, uh, the early 2000s. And sure enough, he averaged four point four rebounds per game over the course of his career in which he played 119 games for Belmont. So talked to all those folks and, and really got some interesting stuff about Grayson. And, you know, when you talk about getting rebounds for a guard, you, you think, well, they shoot a lot of threes. You miss some, get long rebounds. It's not just that. It's going to the rack, getting dirty, getting down there with the big dudes and getting some of those boards. So it was really fun to write this story and to, and to talk to those folks. And I hope people will uh, check it out uh, as part of our uh, Blue Ribbon newsletter. Yeah, the, we we asked for a picture from Belmont of, of uh, you know, by some chance do you have one of Grayson rebounding? And sure enough, uh, he was down there boxing out somebody, mm-hmm. going for a board. Uh, so that will be in the newsletter. So. I don't know. It's just intriguing to me that uh, guys that can pile up stats and affect games without scoring a point. Now, Grayson can score, and obviously Jordan Goodwin at St. Louis averaged almost 16, but, you know, I think he's just as significant for the other stats that he racks up. You know, two steals, 2.1 steals is a great number, and, of course, 10.5 boards or 10.4 boards for a guard is off the charts. Six three guard. I'm sure. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and and Grayson is six uh, two and one seventy five. So it's not like he's you know be, would be considered a really big guard and and being able to do oh. that that job rebounding. No, he just competes like he told you sure. in his story. It started when he was in high school, and he just gets a certain amount of joy. And and he's such a smart kid too. He anticipates, and I he obviously pays attention to scouts. And you know, Dennis Rodman used to study opponents uh, and where their misses were. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was real or some of his fabrication or what, but it made a lot of sense to me where if you could remember the tendencies of players and you could beat people to spots on the floor. And he was also good at rebounding out of his area. He was a machine. And, you know, when you see a guard that can rebound, to me, it's it's impressive. And it takes away a step if you're the point guard. Sure. You don't have to throw an outlet pass. You can rip and go and get down the floor and score before the defense even knows what happened. Yeah, if you can get it down the court, you can throw a, you know, a 50-foot pass to somebody that, that's streaking the other way and, uh, and make it happen. And there, there's, there's that defensive part of it, too, where you have to communicate with your teammates and, and make sure on the on the backside you got things covered. And that's one of the things I talked about with, with both Grayson and with Brian Collins. So, yeah, take a look at that as, as part of our Blue Ribbon Report. Go to blueribbon.substack.com. Chris, uh, we, we should get also a start date for the season coming up in the next week or so. September 16th is when the NCAA's D1 Council is going to uh, likely approve the recommendation of the Men's Basketball Oversight Committee. Uh, November 25th uh, for the start of men's basketball, women's basketball. Move back a couple weeks from the 10th. But it does look like there is a decision which makes you feel good that uh, it feels like we're going in the right direction, doesn't it? It really makes me feel good considering we're, we're publishing Blue Ribbon now. Uh... We, it took me till August 3rd, way later than normal, to decide to do it. But uh, we decided to go ahead. And, yeah, I mean, I think the NCAA needs to play. If you saw that big piece in the athletic, they broke the country down into regions, almost like the NCAA tournament, where you could have, uh, you know, almost regionals, but they're pods. And right. Chattanooga was a pod, which uh, it'd be pretty cool if uh, if it worked out the way they planned it. Uh, they had Memphis and Tennessee playing here, so uh, that'd be a good one. Yeah, that would make it very easy for you, wouldn't it? It, it definitely would if they'd let me in. I don't know. They may not trust me. They yeah. have to take my temperature and blood work and stuff. <laughs> we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. Yeah.
One of the cool things about working with Chris Dorch is that we always get the best guest for our college basketball podcast, and uh, that is the case here as we bring in new Wake Forest head coach Steve Forbes after a very successful run at East Tennessee State. Steve joins us now. Chris, why don't you do the honors and bring him in? I've known a lot of coaches over the years, and and I don't know that I know of a more deserving uh, guy to to get a job like Wake Forest. So, Steve, welcome in. Well, Chris, thanks for having me. I appreciate the kind words, and I'm probably the only coach in the history of college basketball to take a job during a pandemic. <laughs> um, I think we can say that. I'm not sure that was the smartest play in the world, but, uh, you know, Wake Forest is a just a tremendous institution all the way around academics and athletics, and it's a unbelievable campus, great people here, so um, it's been a, it's been a great transition. It's just been a little bit rocky due to uh, the circumstances surrounding the, the pandemic. Coach, uh, I, I think back to a call that we had. You know, even after you left Tennessee, and everybody, we don't have to rehash why that was so. Uh, but you took a job at, at Northwest Florida, and we talked a lot even then. And you were talking about. Uh, you know, just doing what you had to do that, that you loved coaching. And, uh, but during that time, did, if I'd have told you you were going to be the, the head coach at Wake Forest in nine years, what would you have said? Well, I told you you were crazy. <laughs> um, you know, um, I cleaned out my office on my birthday. I don't know. I think I was 46. And on my birthday, four years later, uh, we were beating Kansas and Wichita State in the uh, NCAA tournament to go to Sweet 16, and I'd already verbally – well, I'd already signed the document to be the head coach of East Tennessee State. So, um, no, I would not have thought that was going to happen. I thought, you know, in time, I thought that I would get back to being a Division One assistant at some point if I wanted to be. I, I, I wasn't sure I did because I really – Really uh, enjoyed coaching Northwest Florida, where I went after Tennessee, but uh, things just kind of worked out that way. And I got really lucky, you know, going to Wichita State and being with Greg Marshall and obviously having Fred Van Fleet and Ron Baker and Clanton early doesn't hurt either, you know. And uh, we had a great run, and I got fortunate, and, you know, East Tennessee State uh, came calling. You know, the what, what I thought was great was that you and I had, many conversations over the years about how you would run a program and how you did run a program when you were a coach at, at the junior college level. Mm -hmm. Got to point this out. You were there for two years uh, in Florida. You went to the uh, National Junior College Athletic Association title game both years. Well, uh, as you said, uh, Greg Marshall uh, hired you. And I remember you told me that it was like getting your doctorate degree. Uh, and then ETSU, I thought was, it, it was the right place for the right guy at the right time. Can you talk about your five years there? And, and this last year where, gosh, you guys were 30 and two and just got robbed of a chance to get in a dance. Well, you know, timing is everything, right? I mean, and I knew in the back of my mind that, I mean, I knew East Tennessee State had a tradition of winning in basketball just from my time spent at the University of Tennessee. I've been up in the Tri-Cities a little bit for the Arby's Classic, 
and had known Coach Bartow pretty well. And so I had a pretty good understanding of um, the passion for basketball at, in Northeast Tennessee. And so, you know, when I went there, I knew it just needed a little bit of a spark. You know, it needed the, the interest was there. <clears throat> we just needed to go in, you know, and, and play an exciting style of basketball that, that people wanted to come see play and, and kids playing hard and sharing the ball and, you know, fast break basketball, pressure defense. And then those are the things that we were able to accomplish. And, you know, after year one, the last, I was there five years, the last four years, we led the league in attendance and it wasn't really even close, you know, and so, you know, people got behind it fast and, uh, it was a tremendous, not only just a tremendous place to coach, but a tremendous place to live. You know, the Tri Cities is a beautiful area. And honestly, I, you and I talked about this a ton. It was going to take an unbelievable offer, you know, for me to leave and not just based on the money or the league, but also my fit, my, how I felt about the administration, you know, and that's kind of what led me to wake. Well, is what led me to East Tennessee State. You know, Dr. Sander, uh, I had a great connection with him and Dr. Nolan and then a president and then Scott Carter, who I worked with in Tennessee, you know, became the AD after Dr. Sander retired. And, and the same thing here at Wake, you know, John Curry was my sport administrator at Tennessee when I was there. And so I had a definite comfort level with him when, when he called me. And so, um, you know, it wasn't an easy decision to leave something that you had built to the level we had built it at. We won 130 games in five years and came off 30 and four season. And so, and things weren't going to change. I mean, we had good players coming back and we had signed really good players. And so um, that's, that part wasn't going to change. And so uh, for me to walk away, but having the opportunity to coach in the ACC, you know, historically the best league in America, best players, best coaches, it just wasn't something that a, a guy that graduated, you know, with 32 people from Lone Tree, Iowa, could really <laughs> walk away from. Our, our guest is Steve Forbes. He, of course, uh, going into his first season as head coach at Wake Forest. You know, Steve, what, what's most challenging about going through that, that sort of initial player shuffle that you have? And it really that's the case with, with any program you take over. Yeah. You have transfers in, you have transfers out. and just Just figuring out who you have to get started with. Well, you know, typically you get a chance to meet them, right? right. I mean, yeah. I, I have to be the only coach in the history of college basketball to get a job May 1 and not meet his players till July 20th. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's just never happened, you know? And so to, to honestly answer your question, it was, it was really difficult because after I got the job, I think all but maybe two players went in the portal, you know, and you couldn't really blame them. I mean, they never had a chance to meet me. Normally, when you take over a job, you go in, you know, you have a press conference, you meet with the team. The next day, you have them in the office, you talk to them individually, you work them out, yeah. you go to lunch with them, you get some face-to-face with them. I mean, I didn't get any of that, you know, and so it was a lot of hard work, you know, just on the phone and trying to build a relationship like this, Zoom and phone, that's hard to do. Sure. And so it put us really, I felt, you know, in a tough situation, plus we still had to finish the recruiting class in 2020 um, and then start recruiting 21 and 22. And, and, and again, you know, I'm not, I'm not complaining, but, again, I've been the head coach since May, and I still haven't left campus 
to recruit yet. And I haven't been able to bring a player on campus, which is really truthfully here is the bandage. Sure. You want to be able to bring a kid and his parents to Wake Forest to see the campus and the facilities and, and what's going on in, in Winston-Salem. And so um, we haven't been able to do any of that yet, which uh, has made for some interesting time. Yeah, I'm sure it has. And, you know, you mentioned it's a great school. It's a beautiful place. I've been there. Um how can you also pull from the program's success of the past to, to help rebuild it? I mean, there, there are great players that have come through there, you know, Tim Duncan most notably, but there, there are a bunch more than just him. Oh, no question. I mean, the the, the first week of my, on the job, I had a list of former players to call, and it was, you know, it was intimidating, <laughs> you know, the, the list of players that were on there, and you just said it. You know, it has a lot of parallels, Wake, to East Tennessee State when I went there. You know, tremendous success in the 90s, um, some early success in 2000, and then, you know, last 10 years has, has been, you know, a little mediocre. And so, again, we have to, you know, we have to give the fans hope. We have to give the students hope by going out and playing a style of play that people enjoy. And then we got to recruit at a high level. And then we got to be involved in the community, you know, and, and something that we did all of that. You know, at, at East Tennessee State, the, the model here will be a little different in recruiting. I don't think we'll be able to tap into the junior college ranks like I did at, at, uh, at East Tennessee State, but that doesn't mean we can't recruit great high school players, uh, international players, maybe some grad transfers, you know, and, and, um, and begin to, to, to build this, uh, roster back to what you said, um, unbelievable, History, unbelievable players, you know, Skip Prosser, Dave Odom, those guys did, you know, I have the pictures in my office, you know, just to remind me every day that this is where it can be. And uh, I did that for in honor of those guys. Plus, I did it for myself to keep me focused on where I know this program has been in the past. Steve, I thought it was kind of funny. Um, some pundits said that, well, He's recruited transfers and jukes his whole life. Mm. But what they fail to realize is that the best thing you do, and I joke with you that you're the captain of the all lobby team at the bottom <laughs> four, but the best thing that you do, all for that. you're a relationship builder. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if a kid's in high school, if he's a grad transfer, if he's a juke, uh, recruiting is all about relationship building, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, and you know, you can, anybody can spin a story the way they want to spin it. I mean, I mean, if you go back and look at my five years at Tennessee and my two years at Wichita State, that would have been the last seven years I've been at the division one level as an assistant. I signed two junior college players, maybe three in seven years, you know, um, and I didn't sign a junior college player. My last, the last two years at East Tennessee State, or at least last this past year. So, um, yeah, I mean, I could personally, me, I feel like I can recruit at any, any level, any, any player. It just, I have to have the opportunity to build a relationship though. And I think that's been my biggest, uh, roadblock so far here is not being able to do that, you know, and get out in the gym and get in the home and get in the school. You know, and have and have the kids come on campus and have that one-on-one relationship is is made it it's made it hard, and but we'll get through it. You know, we'll get through it. But 
you know, I don't know. I went back and counted. I don't remember. I, I think I sang, helped sign maybe 10 top 100 players when I was at Tennessee. And then I know two for sure at, at East at Wichita State. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's just a narrative that people want to create and which, which there is some truth to it. I mean, you know, I, I would, I would have been negligent in my job at East Tennessee State had I not recruited all five levels, right? In my opinion, in recruiting, there's high school kids, there's junior college kids, there's international kids, there's transfers, and there's grad transfers. And all those are available to you, then you're not doing your job if you don't explore, you know, all those avenues. And I think probably my my junior college experience helped me with that because the the change in the roster every year didn't really – it doesn't bother me. Um, I enjoyed the building the team every summer and the new chemistry and getting guys to play hard and play together. And I think that, I think a lot of reason why people criticize that is they just don't want they don't they're uncomfortable themselves in dealing with that kind of change and dealing with that kind of roster change every year. Steve, I, I know you just kind of have to go with with whatever happens, and opinions are all over the map on the approach to having a season. What what do you feel like the best approach is in terms of scheduling it and trying to get into as many games as you can? It's a great question, Kevin. I, you know, I'm on an ACC call every week, which has again been an experience in itself. You know, for me personally, just since May, I, every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., I you know I'm on there with Coach K and Coach Williams and. Coach Bayheim and Coach, uh, you know, uh, Leonard Hamilton, Tony Bennett, on and on and on. He got it. Okay. <laughs> he did it. Um, and those, but it's been all, it's been really thought provoking. It's been very informative. Um, and I think, I feel like these, these men, Mike Bray, president of the NABC, have that, our best interest at heart in our players. Um, I think the number one thing we have to think about is, safety and i think this is where you know there's a lot of there's a lot of talk you know going around about bubbles and non-conference bubbles and this and that and all sounds good but last week it came out here that we spent seventy five thousand dollars a week on testing okay so i don't think you're going to see schools like uh, our school and schools at our level go play somewhere in a situation where they don't have the same level of testing that we have. Why would we do that? I mean, I don't think that would make any sense. And I don't think our administrations are going to let us do it, to be honest with you. Um, So I don't know how that non-conference is going to look. I I haven't really thought about it because we don't even know when the league, when the season is going to start. And allegedly we're going to know that September 15th. Um, So I haven't even thought about non-conference. I do think we're going to play. Yeah. I do think we're going to play some, a, a pretty large number of conference games. Um, how that looks, I don't know. Could we bubble as a league? Possibly. I don't think that's what people really want to do. Um, but I think it could happen for uh, maybe, especially in the ACC, I guess. I mean, you know, we have the means to probably do it. I don't think that's the number one way of doing it. I think, I, I do think with, when the, Kids go home at Thanksgiving. It's a good time to quarantine your guys even more than what we're doing now and having a chance to play some games. Now, does that mean we play non-conference? I don't know. Does that mean we play league? See, I mean, I mean, we can start yeah. playing league games and we can play 20 league games 
or we could play 26 league games. I mean, do I want to do that? No, not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, personally, I do not. And uh, I told Coach K this the very first time I ever spoke on a Zoom meeting that like you and I are having right now, we're having was about, I went about 10 weeks, kept my mouth shut. Um, and then Coach K said something about playing 26 league games. And I said, well, Coach, let me just, Steve Forbes here, Wake Forbes. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Coach, you know, but uh, here's the deal. Um, if we play 26 league games, I'm going to take my team back to the SOCON for the year. We're going to change leagues. We were in the SOCON in the 50s. Whatever. I said, we'll come back and see you in year two because we're not playing 26 league games. And uh, he got a chuckle out of that. Um, I was being serious, but, uh, you know, guys, I don't, I don't, I think, and I understand all this talk, you know, and, but nobody really knows. Okay. I mean, when, when you're sitting there and you have coach K and coach Williams and coach Bayheim and Dan Gavitt comes on your call and blah, blah, you understand where I'm going with this and nobody totally has their hand their arms wrapped around this, then we're just, we don't know. And so that's why I really have tried really hard to go day to day with this thing and not, and not think past 30 days, not try to, because if you do kind of be disappointed, probably, you know, and it's probably not going to work the way you think it's going to work. And so, but I do think we're going to apply. I do how that looks. I don't know. I don't know yet. Steve, it's been a pleasure having you on our podcast. Uh, I know Chris always speaks very highly of you and, and your friendship. Yeah. and it, it, Just great to speak with you, and uh, congratulations on the job. And here, here's hoping for a, a season and a successful first one for you there at Wake. Well, I appreciate it. I enjoyed being on. You know, Chris has been a really good friend for a long time. I had to pay him a lot of money to be my friend. Yeah. For, for, so did I. I know. Yeah, but, oh, he did. You know, we, did, we do what we have to do, right? Um, we talk ball all the time. I, I yeah. trust that, man. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. And, and I, you know, again, I, I, I do think we're going to have a season. It's, I just don't know when and how it's going to look and if there's going to be fans and if, if Dorsey's is going to be able to stand there in my face after a game and ask me a question, which would be the best part about not, you know, having playing in a bubble and all that. I, I don't have to have Dorch asking me why I did this or that after a game. I can, just, I can go back to my room. So, um, <laughs> That part will be probably. There are advantages. Oh, there's a lot of advantages. <laughs> but I appreciate you guys having me on. And, good luck, and, man. You know, uh, good luck with you guys. Love the blue ribbon. I have them piled up here in my home office here. As I'm looking across the, the living room here. I don't know how many years, but I, I got that in basketball times all piled up in there. So you're a good man. Appreciate you. All right, buddy. Take care. Thank you, Thank you Steve. Man. All right. All right, Chris. Well, that was, that was a lot of fun to uh, speak with Steve Forbes and, and have a few minutes to uh, to spend with the uh, the first year coach at Wake Forest. And you know, he he did a great job at East Tennessee State at your alma mater. I know uh, as an alum, you have to has to make you you're pretty proud of uh, the work that he did there. And you just wish him all the best as he you know as as he described the the only coach to ever uh, change jobs during the middle of a pandemic. And uh, yeah, that that's got to be a really interesting situation to go in there and try to uh, to rebuild a program. I mean, you, you, you got some names you can throw down there. You got, you know, Tim Duncan and Chris Paul and, you know, Roddy Rogers and Randolph Childress going back to the nineties. There are a lot of great players that, that have come through Wake over the years. Yeah. Uh, I, I talked to uh, Skip Prosser's son, Mark Prosser yesterday. 
he's the head coach of Western Carolina now. And he's talked to Steve several times and he was just impressed the way Steve showed the proper reverence for Skip Prosser. You know, who wouldn't? Uh, Prosser was, was a great coach and an even better person. Uh, but yeah, Dave Odom, same way. Uh, so Steve knows what, uh, hallowed ground he walks upon. I did hate to see him leave ETSU though. Dang it. Uh, it was funny. Uh, in April, he said, you know what this really does, Dorch? He says, uh, this just, if I was going to leave this pandemic, it just shoots that because nobody's getting fired now. <laughs> uh, and boy, was he wrong. Uh, and, and he had been offered some jobs now. Yeah. Um, he, after every year at ETSU, I mean, uh, he could have had New Mexico. He could have had Middle Tennessee State. He was in the hunt for Ole Miss. He was number two at Arkansas behind Eric Musselman two years ago. Yeah. So it was just a matter of time before he left. And more power to him. He left uh, ETSU in good hands. Another buddy of mine, Jason Shea. Uh, a real X and O guy, and he was able to get Greg Hire off the staff uh, of LSU, who had worked with Steve at Wichita State, and Greg's helped them get some SEC level talent already, including uh, a guard who had signed with Ole Miss, and they let him out of his scholarship, and, and another kid that LSU offered, a big guy from England. So, I think the program will still be in good hands. Chris, as we finish up here now, our show is about basketball, but we're going to, we're going to finish talking about a baseball player. And it's, uh, Lou Brock, who passed away a couple days ago. He was 81 years old. You're a guy who goes back years as a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Dude, you, you grew up right in the heart of, of Cardinal territory there in Illinois. But, but Lou Brock, one of the great base stealers of all time. He had the record. He stole 938 bases in his career until Ricky Henderson broke his record and, and <laughs> just put it out of reach forever. But as far as Lou Brock, known as one of the, not only one of the great players, but one of the great gentlemen of the game. And I, I think anybody who came into any contact with him, as you did at one point, and you'll explain in a moment, uh, really came away impressed. But uh, that, that was sad to see the passing of Lou Brock. But, man, uh, j- just a guy I think uh, you, you won't find anybody who has anything uh, negative to say about number 20 uh, in those Cardinal colors. No. Uh, in fact, I, this dates me, but I go back to I was a little kid in short pants, um, Talking about the trade where they acquired Lou Brock from the Cubs, they traded Ernie Brolio, mm-hmm. who's a pitcher and one of my favorite Cardinals. And we just could not get over that. And then sure enough, you know, in, in year one, he helps take the Cardinals to the World Series. And again, in 67 and 68, he was a great base stealer, great uh, fielder, leadoff hitter, uh, just became one of my all-time favorite Cardinals and a Hall of Famer. But I'll never forget uh, when I became a pro in in, in sports writing, uh, a few years into it, I, I was covering the Senior Bowl. I was the sports editor at the Pensacola News Journal. So I drove over to Mobile to cover the Senior Bowl. And Lou's son was a, a defensive back at USC. So he was there to see his son play in the Senior Bowl. And I look up from my seat in, in, in the press box, and there's Lou Brock. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm scared. I'm like, you know, they never meet your heroes. They're liable to bite your head off, whatever. But I finally said, this is Lou Brock, man. You, you got to go talk to him. So I just went up to him and, and I, I said, Mr. Brock, I, I did not say Lou. I just said, I want to, I just wanted to tell you how much you meant 
to my childhood and my love of baseball and my love of the Cardinals. Uh, it, it, it meant everything to me. And, you know, he was just super nice and cordial and we talked a little bit and, uh, that's a moment that I won't forget. And as soon as I found out he had passed and, you know, he had suffered uh, from diabetes and yeah. really had trouble with that in later years. And he died at the same age as my father who also had diabetes. And, and, uh, but I'll never forget when I heard that he passed, I, I thought of that day at the senior bowl. And, and then I thought back to all the great memories that he gave us as Cardinal fans. So he'll be missed. And, Cardinal Nation is diminished with his passing. No question about that. One of the all-time greats. Chris, uh, exciting stuff coming up as we've talked about with Blue Ribbon Report. And folks can go to blueribbon.substack.com to read it or to sign up, get that membership. You can check out our podcast. We, we have it all there. It's really exciting. And you know, we get uh, ever closer to, uh, to college hoop season getting here. So uh, uh, it's exciting for us to to uh, to bring you this content every week. And, and we really uh, hope folks uh, enjoy reading and hearing what we do. I hope so too. You can go to blueribbonyearbook.com to order the yearbook and mm-hmm. also scroll midway down and sign up for the newsletter. It's not for pay unless you want it to be. There is a subscription rate, but you're going to get, uh, this podcast in your email box every Wednesday. Uh, and then on Thursdays, every Thursday we have a newsletter and you can also go to Apple podcasts and, uh, pretty soon anywhere you get your podcasts, we're going to be. So, uh, Looking forward to, to taking this. You know, you and I have done this for a long time on radio and really excited that we've taken it to a podcast format. Me too. Chris, we'll do it again next time. All right, buddy. See you then. He's Chris Storch. I'm Kevin Ingram. This is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast.